Thank you for choosing Talks News, your source into congressional ineptitude. I am your host, the wacko, weirdo, rebel, scum, Jedi hero. Mm. So I'm going to break these segments up a little bit differently today just so I can upload it particularly on YouTube. But first, we're going to get into Trump being acquitted just hours after the Senate voted to hear witness accounts. Simply right after they voted, yes, let's hear some witness testimonies. They took in a uh, one statement from one senator and said, you know what? That's good enough for us. We don't we don't need to do anything more than that. And they acquitted him. Uh, symbolically, this whole impeachment trial was. It's the, U- the, the shortest in U.S. history, only feeding into the idea that this was all just a symbolic move uh, to show that Democrats have some kind of uh, integrity while Republicans are still the party of Trump. So, um, yeah, so I did a little bit of digging to see exactly what had happened when they voted for the witnesses and then decided not to follow through on that it's very curious to me indeed how can you vote for that and then immediately go you know what that vote does no longer matters let's just vote on whether or not he's guilty and even through my little bit of research i have yet to find really anything that was significant enough as to why this happened so uh politico reports that Oh, yeah. Um, That the trial ended with several unresolved mysteries that might be addressed in the coming weeks and could shed new light on Trump's conduct, which was the whole point of actually having witnesses testify. So it's very fascinating here that, like, at this point, who cares what Trump's conduct was? Who honestly cares? Because there's no consequences to be had at this point. Um, and it seems that what had gotten it off the books got it all over was this here. It says Senate Democrats were blindsided on Saturday morning when the House impeachment managers sought witness testimony, resulting in a majority vote to call witnesses. But after negotiations among Democrats, the managers re- later relented and simply allowed a public statement from Representative Jamie Herrera Butler, Republican of Washington, to be entered into the record. Herrera Butler, sorry if I said Butler earlier, it's Butler, uh, said in a statement late Friday evening that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, had told her that Trump denied his pleas to forcefully call off the rioters on January 6th setting off immediate calls for a more thorough airing of the evidence against the former president. Not sure, like, how any of this makes the through line of, like, now we don't need witnesses. Again, that that just brings up more questions than answers. The decision to skip live testimony left those details unconfirmed and poised to emerge after Trump is free of the trial. Free of any consequences is what we're looking at here so honestly the most inept congress that has to be in existence in history that allows this man who has faced no accountability for any of his actions so far continues not to face any accountability so that's all amazing and even even after mitch mcconnell went up voted to equip uh, acquit the president 
former president, we have this. January 6th was a disgrace. American citizens attacked their own government. They used terrorism to try to stop a specific piece of domestic business they did not like. Fellow Americans beat and bloodied our own police. They stormed the Senate floor. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the Vice President. They did this because they'd been fed wild falsehoods by the most powerful man on earth. Because he was angry, he lost an election. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. The House accused the former president of, quote, incitement. That is a specific term from the criminal law. Let me just put that aside for a moment and reiterate something I said weeks ago. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. So after Mitch McConnell votes to acquit Trump, he basically says that he agrees with the Democrats. Wow. Just wow. He is practically and morally responsible, but we will not hold him accountable is the the essential message of that. Wonderful stuff. Amazing stuff. To say that he's responsible but holds no accountability whatsoever. And so to bring this all into a broader context of how Republicans are dealing with this, uh, we have Chris Wallace interviewing Lindsey Graham on Fox News. The Senate voted yesterday 57 to 43 to acquit former President Trump in his second impeachment trial. Seven Republicans broke party ranks to join with all 50 Democrats, making it the most bipartisan vote ever to convict a president. But it was still well short of the 67 votes needed to find him guilty. In a moment, we'll speak with Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who was in the center of the action. His but smile. first, let's bring in David <laughs> Spun on Capitol Hill on the trial's surprising final day. David. Hi, Chris. As expected, Democrats voted unanimously to convict, but they needed 17 Republicans to join. We have no power to convict and disqualify a former officeholder who is now a private citizen. While Senate might... Now, that is only of the opinion of the Republicans based on the precedent they set by acquitting Trump of his charges. It is It would have been in the bounds of them to disqualify him from office had they voted to convict. Now, on top of it, this impeachment trial could have been held while Trump was still in office. But 
the uh, Senate uh, was adjourned during that period by, guess who? Yeah, yeah, you guessed it, Mitch McConnell. So Mitch McConnell pushed it off to the point where Trump was no longer in office so they could have this argument. Even though he still also, too, believes that Trump is practically and morally responsible. So this is honestly like elitism to the zenith, that no accountability is to be held by those that are closest to the power at the top because they have good connections. Minority leader Mitch McConnell voted to acquit the former president. Seven Republicans voted to convict. North Carolina Senator Richard Burr, who is retiring next year, surprised colleagues with his vote to convict on the lone article, incitement of insurrection. Donald Trump's fate almost hung in the balance another few weeks after a floor fight erupted over live witnesses. We would seek the opportunity to take their depositions via Zoom also for less than an hour. None of these depositions should be done by Zoom. These depositions should be done in person, in my office, in Philadelphia. That's where they should be done. People sure, yeah, he, those those laughs are well-deserved. That, that has never happened where they happen uh, in an, a defense attorney's office. That's ridiculous. But in the end, both sides agreed, no witnesses. Next, closing arguments. He abused his office by siding with the insurrectionists at almost every point, rather than with the Congress of the United States. The former president's attorneys defended their client without wavering. This has been perhaps the most unfair and flagrantly unconstitutional proceeding in the history of the United States Senate. Chris, former President Donald Trump out with a statement from Florida last night. I want to read part of it to you. He says, I have always and always will be a champion for the unwavering rule of law, the heroes of law enforcement, and the right of Americans to peacefully and honorably debate the issues of the day without malice and without hate. Meanwhile, the current president, President Biden, out with a statement condemning violence, saying the United States needs to move forward, underlining the word united in United States. Chris. David Spunt reporting from Capitol Hill. David, thank you. And joining us now, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Senator, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Thank you very much. What a, honestly, whenever a politician smiles before they're interviewed, it's it, it looks so disingenuous. It, and most Republicans have very ugly smiles like they, they they never smile. And so when they have to, it looks incredibly bad. Senator, let, let me ask you, like, uh, have you like the thing is, too, is like his smile. Lindsey Graham's is already gone. Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, would be smiling through this entire interview, which is just as cringe. Um, because you're talking of serious matters and you're smiling through it. Sure, it comes off as like you're a pleasant person, but it has more of a Pleasantville vibe where you're coming off kind of sheepish and uh, condescending a little bit uh, by smiling through the issues. But uh, obviously, Lindsey Graham only smiles when his name is said. Introduction, smile. And then once it starts time to talk, his real face comes on and we probably will not see another smile again. Unless... He says it when 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 he uh, uh, pieces off. Spoken to President Trump since the acquittal yesterday, and if so, what was his reaction? Yeah, I spoke to him last night. He was grateful to his lawyers. He appreciated the help that all of us uh, provided. Uh, you know, he he's 
ready to move on and rebuild the Republican Party. He's excited about 2022. And I'm you hear that? Ready to rebuild the Republican Party. So whenever anybody makes this accusation that Trump is not the Republican Party, Lindsey Graham is there to refute that idea entirely. I'm going to go down to talk with him next week, play a little golf in Florida. And I said, Mr. President, uh, this MAGA movement needs to continue. Uh, we need to unite the party. Trump plus is the way back in 2022. Uh, he's mad at some folks, but I understand that. My goal is to win in 2022 to stop the most radical agenda I've seen coming out of the Democratic uh, presidency of Joe Biden. We can't do that without Donald Trump. So he's ready to. Now, let's acknowledge, too, that everything that Biden is doing is nowhere near radical. Trump is more of a reaction to the social Democrats that are uh, coming up uh, hard who do have what we would consider in America to be more radical. Even though if you look at Canada or Europe, it's not that radical whatsoever. Um, so yeah, that that and that's the horrifying dog whistle that I'm hearing here because fascism usually is a reactionary to more socialist communist movements. Democratic socialism, not quite socialist, but it is a stronger welfare state that it seems that the fascism of the United States does not want to be a part of. He hit the trail and I'm ready to work with him. Well, let me ask about one person that he might be mad at, and tell me if he is or he isn't, <laughs> Mitch McConnell, who, who made a, 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 a yeah. curious speech yesterday in which he basically yeah. said the president is guilty, but that uh, the, the yeah. Senate doesn't have the power to, uh, to convict, to act against a former president. Yeah. Uh, what did he think of McConnell's speech? What did you think of McConnell's speech? Well, number one, I was a bit surprised, but I heard this in 1998. I was, I've been in three of the four impeachments. I, I'm sorry about that. But uh, the bottom line, in 1998, you had a lot of Democrats acquit Clinton, but got on the floor and, say, and said how bad he was. So, you know, Nancy Pelosi called us all cowards. I don't think most Republicans care what she thinks. And I think True. Senator McConnell's speech, he got a load off his chest, obviously. But unfortunately, he put a load on the back of Republicans. That speech you will see in 2022 campaigns. I would imagine if you're a Republican running in uh, Arizona or Georgia or New Hampshire, where we have a chance to take back the Senate, they may be playing Senator McConnell's speech. and asking you about it as a candidate. And I imagine if you're an incumbent Republican, there are going to be people asking you, will you support Senator McConnell in the future? And that's the horrifying thing here of the acquittal of Trump is that for Republicans the rest of the time, we're going to find out if they're truly Republican or if they're uh, Trump loyalists. And the Trump loyalists are more likely to radicalize people further to the right because of Trump's tendencies of ultra-nationalism and American exceptionalism, something that we talk about constantly on this podcast because it tends to take on more toxic uh, uh, toxic benefits than anything that's actually positive for the country. So that's that's the unfortunate thing here that we're, we're, we are going to see continue to build is that more people are going to build on the idea that we need to go back to Trump. Uh, and we're the, the Republican Party is going to look at his presidency with rose colored glasses in the same way that they do with Reagan. And the unfortunate thing is, is that Trump's presidency is like engulfed in conspiracy theories. And so having that combined with a demagogue idol warship like we are getting so close to fascism i uh it's making me nervous 
that under Biden, there's a lot of work to de-radicalize people away from the idea that Trump was anything good for the United States. So I like him, Senator McConnell. He worked well with President Trump. I think his speech is an outlier regarding how Republicans feel about all this. I thought the impeachment trial was not only unconstitutional, I condemn what happened on January the 6th, but the process they used to impeach this president was an affront to rule of law. He's the first president to ever impeached, be impeached without a lawyer, without a witness, without an ability to confront the, those <laughs> against him and the trial record. Of Okay, he had two lawyers there. They 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 defended him. So that's weird that he somehow doesn't have lawyers now. Uh, the witnesses were voted for, but then the House managers decided, you know what, never mind on that because now we have this testimony from one Republican uh, from Washington. So now we don't need to do witness trials. The the whole thing was a symbolic move to show that Democrats are against what the right is doing, even though they will do barely anything to actually hold them accountable. Like the fact that Marjorie Green Taylor is still like, yeah, she got pulled away from a committee but the fact that she's still able to hold office is insane the fact that cnn highlighted that she came to terms with 9-11 not being an inside job in front of everybody again that's like this level of just like insanity that the republican party has le leapt to and that the democrats are actually allowing to happen all of this stuff that they're doing that's opposing is like a hundred percent symbolically, especially after Nancy Pelosi just came out and said that we need a strong Republican Party. We don't. We 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 really don't. We need a party that is more concerned about American citizens than they are about one guy. It was a complete joke, hearsay upon hearsay, and we've opened Pandora's box to future presidents. And if you use this model, I don't know how Kamala Harris doesn't get impeached if the Republicans take over the House because she actually bailed out rioters and one of the rioters went back to the streets and broke somebody's head open. So we've opened pen. Uh, we're going to need citation needed on that one. Uh, definitely going to need citation needed on that one. But if there is justifiable articles of impeachment against Kamala Harris, I will probably support it. It has to be justifiable, though. I think incitement uh, of insurrection and also aiding the comfort of insurrectionists by not uh, immediately calling the National Guard and also denying the call as the pol Politico says here. Uh, it says that uh, right here, Trump denied his pleas to forcefully call off the rioters. That's aiding comfort to insurrectionists, a part of Amendment 14, Section 3. The, the, the Republican Party just really just came out that you can not be held accountable if you are not holding office. But if you held office when your actions occurred, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you're no longer in office. And like I said earlier, it has a lot to do with how the uh, Mitch McConnell had adjourned Senate before uh, Trump had actually left office. So again, like this, this whole thing is the the society of spectacle. It's all spectacle, and it's horrible because it does literally absolutely nothing for anybody who votes, anybody who pays their taxes, and anybody who works a forty-hour job. This does absolutely nothing for you, and works only in the continued progression of the Republican agenda, which is moving farther and farther right each and every year. Pandora's box here, and I'm sad for the country. I Because, like, again, too, that, that, that allows, like, people who resign to not have any accountability whatsoever. If they leave office just before they're convicted or just before the trial happens, then there's no accountability to happen whatsoever.
That's the precedent that Republicans set by saying that it's unconstitutional to impeach President Trump for being a former president. Does Donald Trump bear any responsibility for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th? Uh, no, in terms of the law, no, he bears responsibility of pushing narratives about the election that I think are not sound and not true, but this was political. And that, that narrative led to the incitement. That's, that's, that's the incitement was that narrative. So how are those two things not connected? protected speech the speech on january the 6th was not an incitement to violence every politician has used the word fight fight hard so i don't think the he caused the riot his behavior after the election was over the top there was a pre-planned element to this attack um, um, mr wallace that we need to look at did nancy pelosi pelosi know on January the 5th, that there was a threat to the Capitol. What did President Trump do after the attack? We need a nine. Why do we need to know if Nancy Pelosi knew? Because if Nancy Pelosi knew, then that means almost everybody knew. And if everybody knew, then there's a severe, uh, you know, ineptitude going on in Washington that allowed this to go that far. 11 commission to find out what happened to make sure it never happens again and I want to make sure that uh, the capital footprint uh, can be better defended next time so I want to look at what Pelosi knew <laughs> when she knew it, what President Trump did after the attack I mean like in gone over this multiple times it's literally like when you refute a right-wing argument you just go in circles man just endless circles but the National Guard was at the Capitol immediately when there was a Black Lives Matter protest going on when it was the Trump protests stop the steal there was only Capitol Police who were barely even armored up and eventually when the National Guard was called in it was already far too late so yeah there's a very large level of ineptitude going on here by our leaders and you can't tell really how much of it was to serve the narrative and to serve the spectacle here because uh, nobody's facing accountability for anything absolutely nobody N the only ones who are actually f facing consequences for their actions are the ones who stormed the capitol based on what the president had said and on the Senate side was Senate leadership informed of a threat so there was a pre-planned element to this attack totally unconnected with his speech well, and i thought the the well, managers let, let me... failed miserably how is it totally unconnected from his speech when trump had said that you should come down january 6th for a very wild protest and then he happened to speak in front of them just before they went to the capitol how is there no through line there how is lindsey graham able to do these mental gymnastics for donald trump in making the case let, let, let's pick up on something that you specifically uh, talked about. Let's look at the timeline of what happened that day, especially mm -hmm. after the riot began. At 2.24, the president tweets, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. Two minutes later, at 2.26... The and had Mike Pence done what Trump did, it would have gone against the Constitution and how uh, electoral votes are counted on January 6th. President speaks to Senator Tommy Tuberville, who tells him Vice President Pence has been evacuated from the Senate. Uh, around that time, the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, calls the president pleading with him to, mm -hmm. to do whatever he can to call off the, the rioters. 
uh, when the president says he thinks that it was actually Antifa that was involved, McCarthy told Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler that uh, he had to persuade the president it was his own folks who did it. Take, take a look at this exchange. These are your people. You know, they have MAGA hats on. And the president's response to him was, well, Kevin, I guess they're just more concerned about this election uh, than you are. And see, how do we like that was the one who released that statement into the Senate that then right after that they acquitted. How does that equal into acquitting and not the need of more witness testimony? This this whole thing is absolutely, utterly dumb. It's dumb. What does that tell you, Senator, about how the president viewed the riot while it was happening? doesn't tell me a whole lot because it's all hearsay. Uh, why don't we have a 9-11 investigation? I think it's at 228 he told people to be peaceful. He tweeted out several times at 4 o'clock he did a video basically to be peaceful and leave. Could President done more? Yeah. Did he incite this riot? Uh, by his speech? Absolutely not. If Donald Trump's speech is going to be seen as inside. If we're going to take that one speech, then there's no point. And I've already said this in this. Uh, we're going in circles again. It is literally from the day the election began to the day that it ended that Trump has been inciting the narrative that led to January 6th. So his speech just before then is that plausible deniability argument that he said that one time to be peaceful and patriotic by a politician to call violence about every Democrat and Republican up here is in trouble. But I'd like to know that. I'd like to know, did the Capitol Hill police inform the House Sergeant-at-Arms and the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms the day before the attack that they needed more troops? So I want to look at all of it. Sen Senator, I, I, I want to just pick up on that because, and the question of the president's personal responsibility, whether it was legal or not, whether his personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Here's what you said on January 7th, the day after the riot. It breaks my heart that my friend, a president of a consequence, would allow yesterday to happen. And it will be a major part of his presidency. When it comes to accountability, the president needs to understand that his actions were the problem, not the solution. His actions were the problem, uh, allowed the riot to happen. It sure sounds like you're saying that he violated his, his oath of office. Goddamn, Chris Wallace, always consistent. That's, um, that's great, because it shows that Lindsey Graham has already switched to 180, hoping that most people won't remember exactly what he said the day after that had happened. But there is a 180 switch here where he's saying that there is no accountability to be held on the side of Trump whatsoever at this point. Could he have done more? Sure. But is he really accountable for what happened? No, says Lindsey Graham. No. But the day after, he says that his actions are part of the problem but that's no longer the case and let's hear why no i think what he did is he encouraged supporters throughout the country to fight like hell to take back an election that he thought was stolen a lot of politicians have said that on january the 7th he wasn't impeached the guy was impeached within 48 hours he didn't have a lawyer, no evidence gathered. The speech of January the 6th is politically protected speech in my view. 
did not cause the riot. It doesn't represent the 74 million people who supported him. This will be part of his historical record of the Trump presidency. But Democrats, because they hate his guts, wanted to impeach him before they ever met him, have now started a process that you can impeach somebody in the House within 48 hours without a lawyer, without a witness, without the ability to cross-examine um, those. Because that's what happens in a House introduction of impeachment articles. There's, they, they, they're constantly doing this too, where they're mixing up the trial with the introduction of the articles of impeachment. The articles of impeachment are to be uh, introduced in the House. They are to be voted on by a two-thirds majority. If the two-thirds majority passes, then the articles of impeachment go to trial. The president then has 10 days to say why he is innocent of these charges, and the House is able to read those and drop the charges. As far as I know, Trump did not submit that letter within 10 days. But instead, uh, Senate... Uh, Senate Mitch McConnell decided to adjourn the Senate before they could do the trial while he was in office. This is all a bunch of bullshit. Was against you and have a trial record based upon articles from the media. Uh, this thing is turning into a nightmare for the presidency. I rejected the article of impeachment. I didn't think President Trump. The nightmare of the presidency for me at this point is that it shows that no president will actually ever be held accountable for anything was guilty and you have now opened up pandora's box as to senator mcconnell he is a friend but he's going to be center stage now in the 2022 effort to take back the senate i've been asked by a lot of people chris calm president trump down talk to him get him to calm down sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't but to my republican colleagues this is a two-way street 90 percent of the republican party thought this an impeachment was a partisan exercise that's what i thought he is out of office and so to the republican party if you want to win Honestly, it's only partisan if you believe that Trump shouldn't be facing uh, accountability for his actions, for his rhetoric, for his narrative, for all of that. That is the only partisanship that is going on here. And the Republicans have shown that they are Trump loyal, and that is it. That is the partisanship that's going on here. It's not that we hate Trump and that that's the partisanship. It's that people have to face accountability for their actions, especially when it leads to death. The Republicans just showed that, no, that does not matter if we like you enough. Win and stop a socialist agenda. We need to work with President Trump. We can't do it without him. And to you, President You hear that? To work against the socialist agenda. It's a reactionary movement to move against anything that would actually benefit working class individuals because true socialism is focused on helping working class individuals. President Trump, you need to build the Republican Party stronger. I'm into winning. And if you want to get something off your chest, fine, but I'm into winning. And that's the unfortunate thing that I've brought up many times here is that if Republicans want to win elections, they have to convince more voters to vote for them. If he is only solely concerned in winning, I'm not necessarily sure that they're willing to uh, compromise or move their positions to benefit the most amount of people as they possibly can. They want to do so. They want to win without doing that. So by doing so, they will play favor into uh, Trump's demagoguery and use that to catapult themselves into a very far right kind of ideology. I'm not sure if it's exact fascism, but the ultra nationalism, American exceptionalism on top of xenophobia could be, could be. 
and the anti-left rhetoric on top of all of it. Nikki Haley, the former governor of your state of South Carolina, made some pretty tough comments about Donald Trump this week. I want to put them up on the screen. She said he went down a path he shouldn't have, and we shouldn't have followed him, and we shouldn't have listened to him, and we can't let that ever happen again. Senator, is Governor Haley wrong about Donald Trump's future in the Republican Party? He's going to say yes. Uh, yeah. Donald yeah. Trump is the most vibrant member of the Republican Party. The Trump movement is alive and well. People believe that he brought change to Washington. Policy-wise, it was long overdue. Uh, all I can say is that the most potent force in the Republican Party is President Trump. We need Trump plus. And uh, at the end of the day, I've been involved in politics for over 25 years. Uh, the president is a handful, and what happened on January the 6th was terrible for the country. But he's not singularly to blame. Democrats have sat on the sidelines and watched the country be right. burned down for a year and a half, and that said a damn word. And most Republicans are tired of the hypocrisy. So, no, Nikki's. And how does that make him not singularly, singularly uh, to blame if Democrats had said that protests are necessary? But they're equating that to the idea that they wanted people to riot because they equate protests with riots, especially if they're left wing movements, anti left reactionary fascism. So the Trump plus idea is to really catapult on these far right ideas that really just is like free market uh, xenophobia, anti-immigrant, anti-left, and all of that wrapped into a very tight propaganda machine that is relentless in its unaccountability. Cool wrong about President Trump. Uh, North Carolina, the biggest winner, I think, of this whole impeachment trial is Laura Trump. My dear friend Richard Burr, who I like and, and have been friends to a long time, just made Laura Trump almost a certain nominee for the Senate seat in North Carolina to replace him if she runs. And I'll certainly be behind her because I think she represents the future of the Republican Party. Senator Graham, thank you. Thanks for coming in today. Please come. Yeah, I highly doubt that Trump's actually going to run for president in 2024. I just think that his endorsements are going to come big in 2022 and that when 2024 does come around, there's going to be some Trump that runs. Um, Candace Owens said that she wants to run for president, but I don't think she has the clout necessary to actually win. So they're going to rely on either Ivanka, maybe even Jared Kushner. Um, it would be a shame if it was Junior. I think Junior is uh, probably just as effective with propaganda, but he's also like a little bit more. Um, I don't. I, I don't. I just don't see him being quite as as successful quite as like Ivanka Trump, especially with uh, everything that's gone on. She's had a much quieter name, and she doesn't have as many gaffes. Um, but yeah, that's that's the unfortunate thing here is that the whole spectacle showed that Democrats are weak as hell and Republicans are willing to go even further right that saying that even though January 6th was bad, the only people who should pay for it are the people who stormed the Capitol and not the guy who incited and inspired the actions that took that day. So we're going to take a short break and then I will be back with PragerU versus Gravel Institute. Stay tuned for more Talks News.
Welcome back to Tox News. I am still here, your wacko weirdo rebel scum Jedi hero. And now I want to get into a uh, react to two videos. One being from Prager University, a not real in a university uh, that tends to peddle right-wing ideas in short little snack bites of five minutes. I've covered their videos before. Many people have. And uh, to kind of balance things out a little bit, because this is a versus video, we're going to get into a Gravel Gravel Institute video after, uh, I think Mike Gravel is his name, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he was a Democrat who had run for office back in 2012, 2016, and, uh, yeah, it's Mike Gravel. Uh, 20, he, he ran in, uh, 20 or 2008 actually maybe 2012 not 100% sure but I know for sure 2016 and 20 uh, 8 2020's ticket for a little bit um, he, he's definitely a bit more socialist than he is an actual Democrat but he was part of the Democratic Party for a while and he was also senator of Alaska from 1969 to 1981 but uh, shortly after he uh, retired from politics itself his name became the Gravel Institute which uh, H. John Benjamin I think his name was and I'm having a bad time remembering names yeah H. John Benjamin aka uh, Archer aka Bob from Bob's Burgers uh, he did their first video kind of putting out a mission statement for what the intentions of the Gravel Institute were uh, that being to be reactionary and a refutation to PragerU. Um, because right-wing ideas seem to have uh, a lot of backing from PragerU with its five-minute snack bites, and the left didn't seem to have quite the same kind of reach. But today we're going to get a cold reacts to both channels. So PragerU, most recent video is called A Father's Questions for Black Lives Matter. And then Gravel Institute gets into Why America Throws the Poor in Prison. Two uh, differing subjects, really, in, in some ways, and if you're going to ignore in intersectionality. Um, but I think the information within them kind of highlights exactly how PragerU presents its information versus how Gravel Institute does. So to begin with, this is Tox News. So we're going to start with the right wing. Let's get it. I consider myself to be a typical Main Street American. One thing that is different about his name is Dan Collins. He is a father and business owner. Let's go to Google and see if we can get a little bit more context. Uh, this one says journalist. This one says American football. So this Dan Collins that they got specifically does not seem to have much of a public personality. Um, hmm. Maybe he's... No, I don't know if that's him necessarily. Um, yeah, so the only thing that I can find on YouTube on 
Dan Collins is uh, this video specifically. So me is that I have a big family, not so common in America these days. I'm the proud father of 13 children. Eight are white and five adopted are black. My family is my greatest joy and my life is dedicated to their well-being and happiness. I'm struggling right now because I genuinely don't know how best to support my black children through this tumultuous and painful period in our history. Some say I should get involved with the Black Lives Matter movement, while others say I should avoid it at all costs. To help me figure this out, I have some questions for the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Before asking, let me preface my questions with some background. And I'm also genuinely curious that if he thought asking these questions through PragerU would actually reach the uh, global Black Lives Matter movement. Um, most people who watch PragerU do not support Black Lives Matter. So it's very curious to me why he would choose this platform to ask them these questions rather than hosting a forum with the actual global leaders of Black Lives Matter. In the summer of 2020, a peaceful BLM demonstration in my hometown of La Mesa, California, turned violent as protesters began rioting, looting, and setting fires. The next day, I took my 14-year-old... It's very curious to me also that right-wingers equate uh, violence with vandalism. Um, I think it's a bit denigrating to the word violence because when we say a police officer commits violence against a black individual, that doesn't equate to uh, a, a rioter breaking glass windows. Um, most buildings are insured. People's lives, on the other hand, not quite as easily replaced. Black Sun downtown to help with the cleanup. As we walk past the charred remains of Chase Bank, I notice the letters BLM graffitied onto a wall amid the rubble. It was unsettling, as if Black Lives Matter was claiming credit for the bank's destruction. That that's an interpretation of it. Um, like if I, if I uh, spray painted the McDonald's symbol on a building, I doubt people would say that McDonald's is claiming credit for that. I I would really doubt it. Um, especially if like you know it was after a bunch of people came through the streets. I, it's so weird. Um, I just I I I can see where he's making this through line here, but um, it's not really. It's not really like the best point to make, but I can kind of see what he's going for since the vandalism was caused by a protest and now they've left their marker behind to let let you know who did it. But it's just like it's kind of flimsy just because uh, graffiti like can be done by anybody the same as like broken windows. Um, you'll never really see a protester who actually organizes with Black Lives Matter participate in any rioting whatsoever, mainly because that hurts the movement. So anybody who is actually a part of doing these uh, social justice progressive things isn't going to want to partake, partake in rioting and vandalizing because that hurts the movement ultimately. I didn't want to believe that. Just as any parent who has adopted and biological children, I love them all the same. Obviously, I never want to see any of them wrongly accused, mistreated, or targeted because of their skin color. I would happily support any peaceful movement that helps to secure racial justice and equality. I also recognize the need for law and order. No community can survive, let alone thrive, without that. 
this I mean, you know, like the Joker said, we live in a society. So like in order to have a society, you have to have laws and you have to have an order to things. The unfortunate thing is, though, is that since like the 60s, uh, law and order, maybe even sooner than that. But law and order has been used as a dog whistle of as like a term for like rounding up all those wily black people. So it's just really hard to hear you say that you support racial justice and equality but then on the other hand support law and order when these like these terms have taken on contemporary meanings that don't necessarily mean what you're intending to say them as right now <laughs> yeah this is the source of my conflict and confusion is it possible for my family to support the black lives matter movement while also supporting the police i went to your website I definitely think it's possible. The unfortunate thing is, though, is that you can end up supporting policies that end up con contradicting each other. So if you support police to the point that you don't think their funds should be reallocated, then you're not necessarily supporting the summer aims of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was to uh, defund sections of the police to reallocate those funds into something more productive and resourceful, honestly. Um, and just recently in Denver, they had... Um, for six months, they had social workers responding to mental health calls, which reduced uh, a lot of violence. And even the police chief had said that it had saved lives. And so when we have that conversation of defunding the police, it's more about reallocating those funds into something more useful than just constantly throwing people in prison. Um, so you just you, you can support police, like the idea of them having a peacekeeping force, but you have to wonder if the policies stances that you're taking actually hurt one movement over the other that you support. I looking for answers, but I came away with more questions. You state that your mission is to eradicate. And the thing is too, is I want to make my position a little bit more clear is that, um, you can't, necessarily support uh, racial justice by keeping the police force that we have as is mainly because the police force that we have has been cultivated from an era of rounding up slaves as property and returning them to their owners. So there's a lot going on here with how the foundations of the police were founded on racial inequality. And we've kind of built upon that throughout history and now it's making the idea of keeping the police force as we know it and racial justice, racial equality, building that as kind of contradictory, collapsing uh, positions. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I sit. And I think if we are going to have a peacekeeping force that we have to completely restructure it and reform it, like abolish the one we have now and completely start anew. But for the centrists, when we talk about defunding the police, it's merely talking about reallocating funds. There is no abolishment of police whatsoever um some i think the city council in minneapolis had voted to actually defund their police so much so that they would have to create a peacekeeping force but for most places outside of minneapolis they haven't gone that far and do not intend to go in that far but i agree with minneapolis's position mainly because back in the day police forces were merely around to round up slaves and return them back to their owners so if we can build a new peacekeeping uh, police force built on the opposite of that and merely on making sure that communities are as safe as possible, um, not 
facing violent crime there's a different story to have here and uh i like so far what denver did with the social workers because it did decrease the amount of incarceration and possible lives at risk um and it sounds uh it like it was successful with the police of chief or the chief of police in denver so it might be a model that other cities and states can uh you know shape their uh policies around but ultimately i sit on the stand that we need to rethink uh entirely what police are and what they do eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes but you don't explain how you're going to do that what is your definition of white supremacy of local power by state i assume you mean police does he not know what white supremacy means? Because if if so, he could use the model that PragerU put in this video and Google it. And if you don't know what local power means either, you need to Google that as well. And if you can assume what the state means, then I can assume that you can assume what local power and white supremacy means. This is very strange. Who are the vigilantes you're referring to? And how do you propose to intervene in violence? Vigilantes. When they're speaking of vigilantes, you can think of the Abed. Uh, uh, Abed. Uh, oh, what was his? Oh, I had his name for a second there. Uh, Amud Abari. Ahmad Arbery, Sorry. Uh, you can think of that when uh, Am Ahmad Arbery was jogging in his neighborhood and then was hunted down by white people in a pickup truck you can you can think of that as vigilantes those were vigilantes who thought that they had to take it into their own hands even though arbory had not robbed anybody violence inflicted on black communities honestly i can't tell whether you intend to pursue your mission through peaceful or violent methods until recently your website also declared that you will what do you mean you can't tell Will disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Does my family fit that description? Why would you want to disrupt my family structure? <laughs> and I like how he took that personally as well. I think what uh, Black Lives Matter had ultimately said there is that they don't they they want to disrupt the stereotypical nuclear family as the thing that everybody must have, especially since we've you know, moved into the modern era where there are more homosexual families. The, the homosexual family in itself does not fit the nuclear family. They're not out to disrupt your personal family. Just the idea that a nuclear family has to be the way that society is structured. Um, but I'm glad he took it like really personally. And that's why he's against uh, the movement. That language has been quietly removed. Does that mean that you no longer hold that view? I think it's good that they they took that off of their website mainly because they didn't like expand upon that exactly on what that means and it, it allowed like a lot of the right wingers to do exactly what Dan Collins is doing right now which is accusing them of trying to destroy his family. Or was it just the expedient thing to do? I reached out to my local chapter of Black Lives Matter hoping to speak with someone who could help me sort all this out. I then contacted your regional and national headquarters. I got no response. So I began doing my own research. I mean, we have to take his word on that, on whether or not he actually spoke to any of these people. Or tried that to led me out. to an interview on the internet with one of your founders, Patrice Cullors. 
We are trained Marxists, she said. We are superversed on ideological theories. Which theories are those? Is Black Lives Matter a Marxist-inspired organization? Marx advocated for the forcible overthrow of our civilization. Is that... No, he didn't. No, 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 he didn't. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to get into the, the refutation of, of, of that because there's no point. It's, it's a bad faith argument because it's misrepresenting Karl Marx's position. So I'm not even going to get into that. That would BLM wants also. I have a few more questions. As an organization, do you believe in and support the Constitution? Do you honor the flag or do you view it as a symbol of oppression? Do you believe that people should be primarily judged by the content of their character or the color of their skin? Do you support or condemn destruction of personal and private property of others? Do you believe in the defacing and destruction of statues, monuments, and other public property? See, and this is all rhetorical because he's not actually speaking to anybody who could answer his questions right now. And I think overall, this is mostly just kind of giving like viewers of PragerU an arsenal of skeptical rhetorical questions that they can continue to ask rather than really like searching within themselves if they support the ultimate aims of Black Lives Matter, which is to, uh, you know, raise the level of racial justice and equality. Do you believe that police departments need to be reformed? or to be defunded, or to be eliminated altogether. I am one of countless Americans who want answers, but I can't seem to get any. From all reports, you've raised millions of dollars in support of your organization. What are you doing with that money? Are you using that money in some way to help black communities? No one seems to know. I humbly propose that you use some of that money to help black people who have been harmed by the destruction that has accompanied BLM protests. I'm thinking of the many black business owners whose shops were destroyed by riots in your name. The unfortunate thing here, too, is that he's not citing any of these businesses and he's showing like really the, like the PragerU video has like really old pictures with like modern cars in front of a couple of them. And the buildings seem to have cartoon fires around them. So, like, again, we're working in a hypothetical space that doesn't allow good faith arguments to uh, create a discussion that is worthy of productiveness. Like, this is all rhetorical skepticism that it, uh, arms PragerU viewers from actually accepting uh, or really even doing more research for themselves. I'm thinking of the family of David Dorn, the black retired police captain who was shot and killed while trying to protect a friend's pawn shop from looters. With all my heart, I believe that Black Lives Matter. I would like to support Black Lives Matter, the organization, in an effort to support my black children. But it's hard to do so if I don't know your beliefs and goals. Speaking as a father and as a typical American, I look forward to your answers. I'm Dan Collins for Prager University. So I'm genuinely curious, too, that if, like, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the heads of Black Lives Matter see this video, if they're actually going to reach out to Dan Collins, and if Dan Collins would then make a follow-up video and say, I got my answers, here are the answers to those questions, because I highly doubt it. I really do. I think this was only created to create an arsenal of questions that they're uh, either the viewers can answer for them with their own uh, opinions or for them to just constantly act skeptical towards any actions whatsoever that may be somewhat related to a BLM protest. So let's go down to these comments. Oh, they have the script. Oh, the whole script. 
Where do they hide the comments these days, huh? All right, 1,069. Nice. All right, let's go up, 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 down. Down, 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 down. A Stoics door. Uh, this dude ain't ever going to get a straight answer from BLM because BLM has nothing to do with black lives. Okay. Let's see some replies. This guy says, the more concerning thing is that all of these questions were already answered last year multiple times through their words and actions. He's pretending he doesn't know. The video is pandering. Okay. And a response to that one says, it's not pandering, but instead meant to get people to really think about and research the answers themselves, which I'm sure Aaron Spillman did not do. Uh, that was the guy who responded to that earlier. And then another uh, response to that was, I don't think he's pandering. What he's doing is forcing BLM to plainly state their intentions. Yes. Yes. By uploading, by, by doing a PragerU video, you are forcing BLM to do anything. He's comparing BLM's actions to their so-called principles. Even though, uh, you you know, the, the, the rioters can't always be equated to BLM because it may not be have done by members of BLM. And I've already brought the example of the Hell's Angel in Minneapolis many times. Things are much more complicated than people like to admit. But the thing is, is that the far right tends to kind of give simple answers because that's really all people are looking for is answers and the the simpler they are the better it is if the world is gray it's going to be hard for people to distinguish good between evil black between white but if it's just black and white well shit then we can start getting a movement going all right anyways let's find another comment uh they've written out their beliefs already they're not for the black community but for their own political narratives wake up america again that's merely from one point of view who probably has not done much research of their own um let's continue scrolling down find another comment we are trained marxists what other answers do you need and this comes from the massive propaganda machine in the united states that has made marxism and anything related to it basically an unviable political ideology and then we get told that solving this problem that affects families and providing a solution to fix up broken families and improve future lives is both racist and sexist and should not be taught because it's because it criticizes culture i'm not even sure what that person is referring to it's lucrative to females to stay single and have government assistance than it is to keep the father around to provide money for his family no no this person is obviously a male who has not no no um I'd like to answer to those questions too. Money donated to BLM went straight to the Democrat Party. And this is the thing with the uh, uh, Act Blue website, a conspiracy theory that Act Blue directs like all of the money to the Democrat Party when it's actually a platform allowing Democrats to donate to platforms that they support, such as Black Lives Matter, which seems to be a Democratic platform, although not really. It's not, not, not really. Um, BLM still has to uh, pressure Democrats about as much as they do Republicans, if not more. But Republicans tend to be more stonewallish than the Democrats do when it comes to racial justice and equality. But uh, that's just the contemporary times we live in. Um, yep, this guy said the same thing. Come on, we are trained Marxists. That's all I would need to hear. 
All right, let's read one more comment before we get into the gravel. I will tell you where the money is going. Last year, a BLM leader was arrested for using 200K of its donated money for tailored suits, a house, and guns. Citation needed. Said, what the? Love, Rayla. For some reason, YouTube will not allow me to post the link of the article, but here is a little more context. Sir Major Page, 32, was arrested Friday in Toledo, Ohio, and is facing federal wire fraud and money laundering charges for allegedly spending the money on tailored suits, a home in Ohio, and guns. Quote, numerous videos and live stream videos were posted to Page's personal social media pages showing himself in what appeared to be newly purchased clothing, hotel rooms, and office space in Atlanta, the FBI said in its release. Quote, several audio statements are made by Page in the videos boasting about the money he has. Sir Major Page. Let's hit the Google. Uh, the FBI announces the arrest of Sir Major Page. Uh, a complaint was filed with the FBI's National Threat Operations Center in April, alleging that Page was fraudulently utilizing a Black Lives Matter nonprofit organization by way of misrepresentations and by posing as a Black Lives Matter leader. So, not actually even a part of Black Lives Matter. All right, that was easy. That was that. Pro that was probably in the same thing. And this like comes directly from FBI.gov. So, uh, cool. That was, that was really easy. And that seems to what happened, like, that seems to be what's happening most to the BLM movement is that somebody who supports them or, you know, has been vocal in their support of BLM and gets caught fucking up or doing something that's not necessarily legal. And then BLM takes most of the flack for it because that hurts the movement ultimately and benefits Republicans from doing anything at all. All right. So, Good bad faith reporting from PragerU, as always. Let's get into Gravel Institute and feel the contrast. Sean Worsley, a veteran, sentenced to five years in prison in Alabama for using medicinal marijuana he'd been legally prescribed to treat a traumatic brain injury. Fair Wayne Bryan, 63 years old, sentenced to life in prison for stealing a pair of hedge clippers because 18 years before he had been convicted of robbing a taxi driver. Khalif Browder, a 16-year-old held in prison for three years in New York for allegedly stealing a backpack, charged but never put on trial. Beaten by prison guards and placed in solitary confinement for two years, he attempted suicide twice in prison. Still traumatized, he committed suicide at his mother's home after being released. These are just three drops in a sea of similar stories all across the United States. Why are these stories so common? One of the ugly truths about our country is that we lock up a higher percentage of our people than any other nation on Earth. In fact, we imprison more people than any other country, period. Hold on, let me, I got the name of the gentleman in the PragerU video, allow me to get his name. This is uh, Chase Madar. He's a professor of law. In fact, 
We imprison more people than any other country, period. We are the biggest prison in the world. We have a significantly larger prison population, 2.1 million people, than China, a country with three times our population. Why does the United States lock up so many of its people? More than the entire population of New Mexico. Where did this wholesale imprisonment of huge groups of people, what we call mass incarceration, come from? Land of the free. Let's go back a few decades. Starting in the 1960s, many companies looking to cut costs moved production out of big cities like Detroit, Milwaukee, Cleveland, or simply automated away big chunks of their workforce. Their employees... See, and here's the thing that I'm already digging about this Gravel video is that it gives historical context to how we got to the position that we're in now. Uh, I don't think every PragerU video does that. They do give a little bit of history from time to time, but not necessarily the whole context to understand the situation. So I'm very already into this. These were left jobless and manufacturing was ripped out of great cities. And, that, and that's because like, if you want to know what's going on today, then you have to look at what happened in the past. So I'm going to begin this over again because I've been uh, interrupting. Let's go back a few decades. Starting in the 1960s, many companies looking to cut costs moved production out of big cities like Detroit, Milwaukee, Cleveland, or simply automated away big chunks of their workforce. Their employees were left jobless, and manufacturing was ripped out of great cities that used to be synonymous with industry. After 1970, unemployment for non-college educated men soared, especially black people who were just then entering the middle class. People who could leave the cities, mostly middle-class whites, fled to the suburbs, a phenomenon we call white flight. This led to a vicious spiral. Cities lost tax revenue, schools lost funding, houses lost their value, local economies collapsed, job opportunities dried up. As urban poverty rose, crime rose with it. And the arrival of crack cocaine in the 80s, helped along by US foreign policy in Central America, made the problem even worse. See, and this kind of shows how much like white privilege or white supremacy had a uh, toll on these things, even though they're not necessarily highlighting it here. It's a little bit of like the through line that I had seen and that the, the white flight, which is basically probably the majority of the economy of Detroit, moved outside of Detroit because there was too many black people in that area, which then furthered the decline in tax revenue. Um, with that happening, then the uh, basically everybody who was still left in Detroit was left on their own means and with the introduction of crack cocaine uh, that was persecuted much harder than uh, cocaine was and you can get an even an understanding from Kendrick Lamar's music on how that hurt his upbringing because crack cocaine was mostly associated with black people and they persecuted them hard for it while cocaine uh, was associated with rich white people and seemed to have lesser charges than crack cocaine did at the time by the 1970s and 80s there was a full-blown social crisis in american cities resulting in a steady increase in crime now american politicians could have responded one way they could have confronted the root causes of crime by reinvesting in hollowed out cities building a healthier cleaner more prosperous society but that is not what they did instead they unleashed a tsunami of incarceration. They chose to lock up millions of people rather than accept the type of broad redistribution of wealth 
jobs, and power that a real solution would have demanded. Mass and car. And honestly, that's like that phrase is something that uh, the the upper class hates and um, will do anything to avoid redistribution of wealth. Um, and most of that does come through with how America is set up through the tax system. And as we've seen, the top 1% continues to pay less and less in taxes, while the middle class and lower class takes on the burden and thus completing the cycle of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Incarceration is expensive. But for the well-off, it turns out to be a lot cheaper than actually solving the problem. So the U.S. government decided to combine the harshest penal state in the world with the stingiest welfare state. And this carceral approach was also effective politics, with white voters terrified of rising crime from increasingly non-white cities, Republicans and Democrats alike saw a way to exploit racist fears and get cheap votes. It started with Richard Nixon's promise of law and order in 1968. Ronald Reagan vowed to get tough on crime in the 80s. You remember when I had said that we do need laws and organization order in order to have a society? But here, even this video in itself did bring up that Nixon used the term as more of a dog whistle to say that we need to round up all these wily black people from destroying our communities. It has not ended being that kind of term. By 1996, a Democrat like Hillary Clinton was warning of young, quote, super predators with, quote, no conscience, no empathy, people who must be, quote, brought to heel. Over those decades, politicians from both parties and at all levels passed harsher and harsher laws feeding the prison system. The war on drugs started in 1971. Cruel mandatory minimum laws came in the 1980s. Three strikes laws arrived in the 90s. You could be put away for life without parole for stealing a pair of socks if it was your third offense. Tough on crime prosecutors and judges gained office across the country. Huge sums of money were spent on building new prisons, which housed millions of people. As a result, incarceration rose dramatically. In 1968, America's prison population was 102 per 100,000 people, in line with other developed countries. By 2005, it had risen sevenfold to 737 per 100,000. Holy crap, that graph is horrifying. As, as something that constantly says that it is the land of the free, this graph is horrifying the highest in the world. Even as crime fell, with murders in New York dropping 90% in the 90s, mass incarceration kept on growing. Why didn't prison populations fall once crime started declining? It's because prisons are by no means only about crime. They're also about keeping the least advantaged people in line. Prison has become the place to warehouse people with mental illnesses, people experiencing homelessness, and people with addictions that the system is not designed to help. And I want to highlight a book that I read a few years ago by Michel Foucault that goes into madness and civilization, and it gives a broader context and history on how we've treated people with mental conditions who don't fit inside the neurological standard that we uh, attribute to quote-unquote productive members of society. Um, so I would say for a broader understanding of how we've continued to dehumanize these people, uh, Michel Foucault, I think, has a pretty good book about it. And it really dives into the medieval ages because then it was whew, some dark stuff.
Instead of solving these problems, we use prison to disappear the people who have these problems. With this surging population, prisons sight, are crowded mind. and violent. People in prison are robbed of their humanity, often brutalized by guards, and without real rehabilitation or good options for re-entry into society, are sometimes turned into the hardened criminals the system believes them to be. That and I mean, Shawshank Redemption is like an also great movie to like kind of apply to this a bit because they spend 40 years in jail and the whole industrial revolution just completely overtakes them. And as soon as they come out into society after serving their sentence, they have no way to cope with how society has advanced well beyond their understanding of it because prison is not meant to rehabilitate criminals or human beings, but merely to keep them away from others. That's why academic evidence suggests that prisons make people more likely to engage in criminal behavior, not less. You can't eradicate crime without eradicating the root causes of crime, including prison. And it was poor and non-white communities that were the hardest hit. Hurt by deindustrialization and then criminalized by the state, black men born between 1965 and 1969 have been more likely to go to prison than to graduate from college. Less educated people in general are victim to this. A white man without a high school degree has a 25% chance of being imprisoned in his lifetime. A black man without a high school degree has a 70% chance. Mass incarceration has done massive harm to our communities, our families, our children, and to the millions of people caught up in it. Mass incarceration cannot exist in a healthy society. It is an intentional humanitarian disaster, a war by the ruling class on the poor and the marginalized. Mass incarceration is a choice, but it's their choice, not ours. This is Chase Madar, professor of law for the Gravel Institute. Man, that was pretty dark just because it actually didn't provide much solutions, but it did at least highlight exactly, um, you know, what kind of perpetuates the cycle of recidivism and also the, the criminality of certain uh, communities. And so I like what Gravel is doing because it's it, it comes from a good faith argument because it tries to put everything into proper context and doesn't provide a bunch of rhetorical ammunition to viewers to simply uh, refute any opposition to their own beliefs. But it did provide information that you can add to your knowledge to understand how the world works around you. That might be my own bias. I'm sure somebody who's completely right wing could see something entirely different. But from what I got from that was information and historical context of how we got to where we are. And that, I feel, is the broader uh, difference between the Gravel Institute and PragerU. And so I would like to thank you for joining me on Tox News. You can find me on Twitter at ToxinPod, T-O-X-N-P-O-D. Uh, you can see the videos and the live, re not live reactions, but the reactions on YouTube under Tox News. Um, and the outro music was, the intro and outro music was made by me. So why not just, you know, throw more credits around to make this sound more professional than it is. Uh, anyways, join me next time and I will have more toxicity to detoxify if that is even possible in the conditions of society that we live in now. But other than that, I hope you have a beautiful day and a wonderful life.